Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Greetings of peace, love, and light. I pray everybody's well. You're tuned into Path and Present Podcast, and I am your host, Baraka Blue, broadcasting from a rainy and gray November day in Seattle, Washington. Alhamdulillah. Um, sending love and light to you and yours. A few updates before this podcast. This Saturday, November 23rd, I will be in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I'll be doing a program with a new organization called Kimia. Kimia means uh, chemistry or alchemy, right? Alchemia is how we get those words. And uh, yeah, it's a good organization, beautiful organization that is uh, brand new. Uh, and it's kind of like a sister organization, inshallah, to Wasit, our organization here in Seattle. And I'll be talking about Islam and the cultural imperative, uh, Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah's paper. Uh, so come through if you're in the Pacific Northwest, and you can find information on my social media. Um, other than that, I'll be coming to Boston in December, Boston and the LA area in December. Uh, you can find information about that on my social media as it comes up. And, um, yeah, if you're in Seattle, come on through to Wasit. We've been doing uh, a lot of programs. And we just had a, a great week with Dr. Bilal Ware here in town. And um, a series of programs capped off by our annual Molid celebration of the birth of the beloved Prophet, وسلم, where we also had... Uh, Nasheed artist Uthman Ames and percussionist Marlon Alton, uh, friends of mine from the Bay Area. And uh, it was a wonderful turnout, and it was a, a great group of people coming together for the reason of love and salutations upon the best of creation. Um, this episode is with. Dr. Bilal Ware, we recorded it while he was in town, and uh, for those that don't know, Dr. Bilal is a specialist in Islam in Africa, and he has written uh, a couple books, and he's working on a couple more that he told me about. His first book is called The Walking Quran, and it's about uh, traditional Islamic pedagogy in West Africa. And uh, it's a great book. And then his follow-up book is called Jihad of the Pen. And it is about uh, great poets, great writers, and great authors of West Africa. Um, so check both of those out and be on the lookout for his other work as well. Um, yeah, in this conversation, we talk on themes of that, what sent him on his journey to uh, to dive into this topic, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Um, I want to say thank you to everybody who supports the podcast, uh, everyone who shares it, everyone who listens, everyone who supports financially through Patreon, everyone who makes dua for it. Uh, if you do like this uh, podcast and you want to support, please uh, rate and share or rate and comment on iTunes. Uh, that helps it go up in the charts. Share it with your people, anyone you think uh, might be interested, and make du'a for it. 
And then finally, if you have some dollars to give to it um, to help support the production of the podcast, you can give to our Patreon site, pathandpresent.com slash, uh, patreon.com slash pathandpresent, rather, patreon.com slash pathandpresent. Um, and you can find the links in our iTunes as well as our SoundCloud. And uh, Patreon allows you to support content creators. And we have one for this podcast. You can give as little as a dollar a month, $5 a month. And that helps us cover our costs and helps us uh, bring these wonderful voices to uh, amplify them to the world. Alhamdulillah. So thank you for listening. And we want to wish you a wonderful uh, day and send you love and light. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa The medium of a podcast, um, I've been surprised at how dope it is because mm. at the same time like what you mentioned before which is like people have a shortened attention span and people you know aren't even going to sit through like a youtube lecture or whatever there's a truth to that but there's also if you really like look at some of the metrics on the successful podcasts mm. that have like millions of downloads they're people having two three hour long conversations mm. and it, it, so it does show that like you know, there is a, I think there is something to that, inshallah. But, um, yeah, alhamdulillah. So, I want to hear about your work. And the only book of yours that I've actually seen and kind of have some familiarity with is your first book, mm-hmm. um, which is about Quran schooling in West Africa. But I know you also have a new work called Jihad of the Pen. Um, and so it seems like your interest is in um, African history, but particularly Islamic history in Africa, mm-hmm. in West Africa. Um, but also that there is a interesting, um, like you're also history of African American history, yeah. uh, historian of African American history. So there's like a that transatlantic piece. Yeah, and. Um, I know you've spent time also in West Africa and Senegal, particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, what would you say is like at the actual heart of what you are most interested in as a historian? Because I know historians, even though it is a it is a career, we pursue the questions that are deepest in our hearts, and that might take different, yeah. you know, directions. But what is that core question that you're seeking to answer through your research i mean it's a it's a it's a difficult um question to answer because the answers changed over the course of time um but like as you were asking it i was like flashing back to like where it started for me like what i was really most interested in getting to um and i think that in the end like i really first got interested in african history um in order to try to figure out what black people were before this happened to us. Mm. Um, The way it happened, truthfully, is that I was playing minor league baseball um, and I was on a 16-hour bus ride 
from Minneapolis to Saskatchewan. And it was a brother um, that I knew from my uh, days at uh, GW at George Washington University in DC, who had recommended this book to me by Naeem Akbar. It's called Visions for Black Men. Mm -hmm. um, and it had a um, uh, like vignette about um, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, about Paul Robeson, about a third uh, person. And the fourth person that was mentioned in this book was a person called Sheikh Anta Diop. That's what the mm -hmm. word um, and I knew all the other people in the book, but I didn't know who this Sheikh Anta Diop person was. So I was getting ready for this 16 hour bus ride to Saskatchewan. So I went to the library. I'm like, I need some read materials for this long trip. Um, and I checked out um, uh, African Origin of Civilization, Myth or Reality by Sheikh Anta Diop from the Minneapolis Public Library. And I still have that book in my office <laughs> right now at UC Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. Because on that 16 hour bus ride, like I read like, um, all of this incredible stuff, you know, about African history. And my reaction was honestly like, wow, there's an African history now. Like, cause I didn't know anything about it. I had never yeah. been taught anything significant about Africa, like through hip hop music and other places. Like I was always getting pointed back to the motherland, but I didn't have any content behind it. And all of a sudden, like there was this, you know, African intellectual that was making this incredibly powerful argument that like the birthplace of civilization is ancient Egypt and the ancient Egyptians were black. And here's how they influence African civilization here's how they influence European civilization and I was like I need to know more about this and so um, I looked up and it was wild it's like really one of those moments where like um, like you can really pinpoint a single moment where your life changes so I was playing minor league baseball I'm 19 or 20 years old um, and I'm hunched over this book you know, just on fire, like <laughs> with this knowledge. And I look up and um, Juan Berenguer, who had been previously a major league pitcher for the Detroit Tigers, Minnesota Twins, San Diego Padres. He was like 40 at the time, trying to make a big league comeback in his mm -hmm. independent team. Um, he's got bottles of tequila at the back of the bus and they're passing bottles of tequila um, and a keg of beer up and down the aisles. Um, and they're passing girly magazines because this is before you could get pornography on your telephone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so they're passing girly magazines, beer kegs and tequila bottles up and down the aisles, you know, wilding out. And here I am hunched over African origin of civilization, myth of reality, like thinking, man, I need to know more about this. And I literally just had that thought like, oh, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> like I'm in the wrong place. You know, like it had been a summer of, you know, watching these guys go from town to town, drinking and womanizing mm -hmm. and realizing that, like, I love baseball. I'm good at it, but maybe mm -hmm. I'm never going to be comfortable on these buses mm -hmm. for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And then when I got opened up to African history, I was like, you know, like this is, you know, extraordinary. Why has all of this been hidden from me? Mm -hmm. I need to know more about this. Mm -hmm. So. I just decided at that time I was going to go back to school and start to study. And within a year, I was in Senegal, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, on a study abroad, you know, thing for six months. And like that was the beginning of it changing my life. Like and if you look at like all of my scholarly and intellectual output, you know, fr from that time, in some way or another, it connects back to that moment because it's about connecting African history with the African-American experience. There was an important Islamic component in what Sheikh Anta Jok was, was talking about. Um, and, you know, more than anything, like it was about like contesting white supremacy mm -hmm. through like seeking genuine historical knowledge. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
MashaAllah. Yeah, that that kind of thing, it actually reminds me of a moment that I remember in Seattle. Two of my best friends growing up, black brothers, and we were in the used bookstore. And I remember, and uh, like one of them said, there's no books on Africa here. Like, what is this? And I remember that like this old man came around the corner, almost like straight like a vision. Like he came out of the vision realm. And he said, here. And he handed, uh, they came before Columbus. Ivan Van Sertima. Yep. Yeah, that was what I went to right after African Origin yep. of Civilization. Yeah, and I, so I read that and I was like 17 and I was like, we were talking about last night, I was imbibing all this like Afrocentric messaging um, from through hip hop and yep. then through the like circles I was in. And it's, it's really profound how, and I was just thinking about this because, you know, you think about um, not only the Islamic movements in the 20th century, the Nation of Islam, um, more Science Temple, Five Percenters, etc. But also you could take um, like the Rastafari oh, religion, yeah. you could take the um, Black Hebrew Israelites. Absolutely. They're all kind of like branches of like a kind of Garveyite and this whole vision of Definitely. like, okay, we have to reclaim who we always were. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, um, you know, I have my own, in, you know, it's interesting, like we were talking last night yeah. off mic, but like, like, I think a lot of like white people that grew up in hip hop and were like also like kind of by default, like molded in a very Afrocentric thing, had a real interesting like, how do I square all this? <laughs> and Islam became a place where a lot of these people could actually find like a reconciliation yeah, with yeah, whiteness. Yeah. But that's kind of a... Well, I mean, what the way that I looked at it, you know, like because so at that point in time, I had already become Muslim. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I came into Islam um, when I was 15. I had this experience probably when I was about 20. Mm -hmm. But really, like, um, you know, the 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 promise of like that kind of Islamic universalism mm -hmm. um, had already become a disappointment for me, right. you know, by that time, by the time right. I was 20 years old, because, you know, like the. Like I had a similar experience, like you know the Afrocentric tip, you know, like drew me into to 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 a bunch of stuff. I started reading, got to the autobiography of Malcolm X. That's what ultimately brought me into Islam. Read about the nation, you know, all of that other stuff. Became a Muslim, expecting like this kind of um, you know universalist um, liberatory mm -hmm. community, mm -hmm. and instead, like I found the actual American Muslim community, which mm -hmm. was hella racist. Mm -hmm. um, and so by that time, by the time I was you know nineteen or twenty, like I had already you know kind of become disillusioned really with a lot of what the American Muslim community was offering. So that was also another part of like my personal experience with it is that like I had I felt like um, what was really calling me to, to Senegal specifically was really Africa. And it was only after I got to Africa that that Islamic dimension really started to come back to life because I started mm. to see people who were living Islam like right <laughs> um, mm. as opposed to the people that I had experienced here. Um, but I think that what you say is true that like that, especially, you know, like, cause I did see this with a lot of the, you know, the, the, the white Muslim converse that came up around, you know, black people is that like, you know, like Islam, like gave a vehicle for making sense yeah. of like a certain kind of critique yes. of, you know, what this place America is and the role of white supremacy in yes. it, you know, that like allowed you to like, you know, uh, like you, you didn't have to be the devil, <laughs> um, like you know, as according to the yeah, to, to the nation. Exactly. You know, if you renounce devilry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, like reading the autobiography of Malcolm, you know what I mean? It's like 
it's like, okay, okay. And then, yeah, he get at the end, he's like, you know, Islam can heal this. It can. can. Heal. It, it can, can heal this. Yeah, no, that's it. Um, that's real. And, uh, yeah, that's deep. But I want to get into your time in, um, in West Africa. Sure. And, um, you know, you're speaking about coming up here and, 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 you know, reconnecting with your ancestral heritage outside of, like you mentioned the other night, um, the W.E.B. Du Bois, like measuring yourself with someone else's tape, <laughs> right? Man's tape, yeah. So like being able to be in the, your ancestral homeland. So I just love to hear like yeah. what that was, how that was. Man, that. it was, it was such a, it was a, it was a really, it was a transformative experience. I mean, you know, it was 1996, um, and you know, like we just are getting an internet here, you know, like there is no internet, you know, there, um, you know, at the time, like it was a different world, you know, and I'm, I guess I'm dating myself by mentioning how long ago that was, but, um, yeah, so I get there and, um, I mean, I'll, I'll say something, you know, like on air that like really only like people that know me actually know, you know, which is that like I fly halfway, you know, around the world. I only had enough money from the scholarship that I got to go study, um, you know, to, to spend about five or six months there. So I had to buy, you know, the return ticket, which was six months out. The first night that I landed out, I, I just was like, oh, my God, I made a terrible mistake. <laughs> I got to stay here for five or six months because <laughs> I was tired from 20 hours of flying mm -hmm. through Europe and I get to, you know, halfway around the world and I'm like where am I mm -hmm. you know like I'm so far from everything that I've ever known you know like um and like that night I was just like man what have I done mm -hmm. you know and then the dawn came you know and I was staying at a guest house at the University of Dakar campus and the sun is rising and I realized that like I'm a hundred yards from the Atlantic Ocean mm -hmm. um in like the most beautiful environment that I had ever seen and I was like oh man you know like okay now this wasn't you know like a mistake like I'm in the right place mm -hmm. um and then I mean I just had this really incredible experience of like trying to process what America had done to me as an individual and to us as a people that our behavior as black people was was so similar but also so radically different from what I experienced in Senegal mm. like I saw people that literally look like relatives of mine yeah. I saw people whose hand gestures and bodily movements like reminded me of people I grew up with as though I had known them my whole life but then again at the same time like I encountered the most civilized people that I had ever encountered mm -hmm. and I remember the first close friend that I made there he's still a very close friend of mine his name is Babakar Fall um, and after probably about two weeks there and, you know, had been getting to know this brother, he was the night watchman at the place that I stayed. So we used to just hang out and chain smoke cigarettes and drink <laughs> Senegalese tea, you know, every night. And um, I said to him something I was like, you know, because um, I was also seeing like what what looked to me like really crush, crushing poverty. And I had been extremely poor as a child, but I thought that like this was the worst poverty I ever seen. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was reflecting on like how violent the DC that I had grown up in was like the, at the time DC was still the murder capital of the US there mm -hmm. were five or six hundred murders a year in a city of six or seven hundred thousand people and um, so I asked Babacar I was like well how many murders a year are there you know in Senegal like this poverty like is mm -hmm. real like you know like so I'm just like was worried about like you know the scale of crime and stuff like that 
And he said, I'll never forget what he said. He said, murders? And I'm like, yeah. He said, you mean when somebody kills somebody on purpose? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, nine or ten. Hmm. I said, what's the population of the country? At that time, it was like six million or something like that. I was like, y'all have nine or ten murders a year in a country that has a population of six million people. Whereas in you know the city that I grew up in, we have 600 murders a year in a city that has six or 700,000 people. And like by every objective measure, the poverty here is you know, worse than it, than, than it is you know, when I grew up. And I grew up being like evicted from every place that I ever lived at until I was like eight years old. I never spent a calendar year at the same address until I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I told him then, like, and this was really like, you know, kind of like the beginning of like really trying to understand like how African culture and Islam was fundamentally humanizing. But I said to him then, I said, look, if you left my people under these material circumstances, leave for six months, come back, we'd have killed each other off. And that's when like I realized that like, you know, something, you know, um, something precious you know had been like you know taken from us or so radically endangered that like it needed to be resuscitated and in order to be resuscitated it needed to be understood you know so that was when i like started to really you know try to kind of you know get into a deeper exploration of what made these people so much more civilized Mm. you know um than what i was used to um yeah and for those that that haven't visited um because i've had the blessing of visiting uh, West Africa a couple times and um, traveling throughout Senegal and the Gambia um, but maybe you could paint a picture of what what the expression of Islam is like there because it's uh, it's so beautiful and it's so wonderful and I mean you just see that um, you know Sheikh Ahmed Obamba and Sheikh Ibrahim Niass's face are everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. everywhere. And yeah, so maybe you could just speak about the expression of Islam you found. There. Yeah, I mean, so that was the, you know, the first thing is that like the Islam that I had come into in the late 80s in America was very preachy and self-conscious, mm. you know, <laughs> like it was mm. um, now as an academic, I would like classify it as like affected and performative <laughs> you know yeah um and if my grandma had to describe it she would have probably described it as people putting on airs mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. like it was really a kind of like external performance of piety yeah. um what you see in senegal is something so dramatically different you know from that um you know you you see an islam where like it's not about telling people about creed or, you know, um, trying to convince people that, you know, the mistake that they've made makes them a bad person or any of that stuff. It's just Islam is expressed by like being decent, kind, generous and open hearted. Mm-hmm. That's Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, Islam is being a human being towards other human beings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and like first respecting and acknowledging one another's humanity before anything else happens. Mm. And I'll give you a very small example and then I'll answer like the question that you actually asked. But a very small example was like maybe the second week I was in Dakar, I was downtown um, and um, 
uh, I was trying to get somewhere, you know, by a particular time. I didn't have a watch on, didn't have a cell phone, you know, back in those days to just check the time. So I asked this brother that was, you know, standing on the corner, you know, what time it was. And he just looked at me. And at first I thought maybe I was mispronouncing, you know, what I was saying. So I asked him again. And as I was like, you know, do you, uh, do you have the time? And he just, you know, kind of looked at me. And I'm like, I'm sorry, am I not saying, you know, this right? And he said, no. He said, you asked the question, fine. He said, but here we greet people before we ask them questions, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And I was like, my bad, salam alaikum. And he said, alaikum salam, it's 2.30, <laughs> you know? And like the, the, and it was just a small thing, but I realized like what he was saying is, is like, you know, treat me like a person rather than as a means to an end, yeah. you know, like acknowledge my humanity first and then whatever you, you know, whatever you need. But I also saw like, you know, people who like were, were in objective terms like poor, but whose greatest pleasure was in like lavishing hospitality on people, mm-hmm. you know, just, um, you know, given with incredible kindness. And then, like you said, also like everywhere you went, you saw, um, you know, like public expression of people's commitment to their spiritual guides. Ahmed Ubamba, Abdul Qadir Jalani, Ahmed Tijan Sharif, Sheikh Ibrahim Yas, Elaj Malik Si. You'd be in the middle of the hood and have full length wall murals to Abdul Qadir Jalani. Like there's one right across the street from my best friend's, you know, like apartment, right smack dab in the middle of the hood, full length wall mur- mural of Abdul Qadir Jalani right mm-hmm. in the middle of the hood. You know, like the way that, you know, you got a biggie, you know, mm-hmm. a mural in the, in the middle of Brooklyn. Like you got, you know, the, the, the Aliya Allah, you know, uh, framing every corner of people's existence. Um, so like you have this constant reminder of like righteous people. Um, so it's just a very, very different place. Um, it's a very different place. So put it like just a little data behind it. Um, and this is something that I cite in Jihad of the Pen is that like Pew Research did um, polling in different parts of the Muslim world for the number of people that self-identify with a Sufi order in different Muslim countries. And the top 11 countries are all in West Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as percentage. As far as percentage that self-identify mm-hmm. with, a, with a Sufi movement. Um, and the Senegal is the highest. Hmm. It's like 98. 92%. Yeah of people self-identify with a yeah. Sufi movement. The next highest is, I believe, Chad at 55%. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and throughout West Africa, the numbers hover around 30% in most places. Now, mind you, outside of West Africa, there is no other country in the world where that number reaches 30%. SubhanAllah. <laughs> SubhanAllah. So it's this place where, like, um, you know, Sufi principles, Sufi etiquette, you yeah. know, reverence for the beloveds of God is yeah. like just part of the culture. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful when you put it like that. It's like if there is one Sufi country on earth, it's Senegal. Basically, Sen- Senegal is the Sufiest place on earth. Yeah. That's the that's just, and you feel that you um, when, when I was there. You know, it's just real love of. Allah, love of the Prophet, and love of the saintly people. That's it, and that's like everyone just. No matter who you are. No matter who you are. Like shopkeeper, you know, businessman, old lady cooking, like dude who's kind of like running the street and kind of like caught up, but he's still like wearing the necklace of his wali around his neck. He's still still down for Ahmadu Bamba, like, you know, or it's down for Sayyid Ibrahim, no doubt. No doubt. Um, 
and that like that's all the way you know like that's all the way real i've told this story you know like a few times but that was like kind of part of my re-education was um buying a pair of bootleg bootleg air jordans from a sneaker vendor in downtown dakar maybe like in my first month in town um and um, he had an Ahmadu Bamba uh, picture on a necklace around his neck. And I was, you know, all on the whole, you know, kind of like Salafi trip, you know, basically, you know, like, well, you know, that's shirk. Why you got a picture of this dude around your neck? Like mm-hmm. all believers should have a one to one relationship with mm-hmm. God, you know, and that whole thing. And, um, you know, it was and this is also like part of the broader lesson, like is you never know who you're talking to in Senegal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I was talking to a you know 19 or 20 year old. Um, and he proceeded to like, you know, school me. So he, he was he was like, well, um, I hear that kind of thing a lot, you know, like from Westerners, you know, I guess even, especially Americans is probably that whole all men are created equal thing. He said, which is a great thing to say, but we all know it isn't true. And he was like, take these, you know, take these Jordans, you know, no matter how hard you practice at basketball, you'll never be as good at basketball as Michael Jordan. Um, and I was like, yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> and then he was like, you're a student, right? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, let's say you're studying physics. No matter how much you apply yourself to the study of physics, you'll never uh, master physics the way that Einstein did. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, nah, for sure I won't. Um, and he said, and that's because certain people are given more innate talent for athletics or for intellectual achievement than other people. Um, he said, and the same thing is true of spirituality. Um, so this person that you see around my neck, Ahmed Bamba, he was like a Michael Jordan or an Albert Einstein in the realm of spirituality. Mm-hmm. And those of us that are trying to make progress in our religion, we're going to follow behind a master. We're going to follow behind an expert. That's why I stay behind this one. So as far as your writings, you have, um, you have the uh, one about Quranic schooling. Mm-hmm. The walking Quran. The walking Quran, and then you have Jihad of the Pen. Do you have another uh, one between those, or those are the so two? So those words? are the two two books, and then there's also like um, other publications, um, and a lot of my stuff on uh, Muslim anti-slavery movements mm-hmm. have been published in article form because mm-hmm. I'm working on a book right now that's specifically about that. Okay. Uh, and so most of that stuff has appeared in articles so far, not in not. So in maybe we could talk about those three topics. Sure. So first. Um, the first book um yeah maybe you could just like introduce what you were trying to tackle what you're trying to yeah. cover in that i mean what i was trying to tackle was like so i became convinced pretty early on that quran schooling was something that was important in west africa but i didn't really know why um because this was pre 9 11 and there weren't a lot of academics um that especially people that are working on africa that were really explicitly interested in islam Mm-hmm. I had people tell me when I told them that I was interested in studying Quran school and in Senegal, I had academics tell me, why would you do a history of Bible school? Like, what could you possibly learn? Like, the idea was that there was that they were intellectually uninteresting mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and therefore, like, you shouldn't necessarily pay attention to them. Fortunately, my Ph.D. advisor wasn't one of those people. He was somebody who, like, was intrinsically interested in the question and thought it was an interesting question. And then when I went back to Senegal um, as a graduate student to kind of, like, do a feasibility study, every Senegalese person that I talked to about 
potentially doing this as my topic was like you have to do that mm. nothing is more misunderstood outside mm. of you know uh, west africa than this because quran schooling is something that was you know was and still is getting like lambasted in the press people talk about it in terms of exploitation of children child like all there's all these terrible terrible mm-hmm. stereotypes um, about Quran schooling that didn't reflect in any way people's internal understandings of what Quran schooling did and how it worked. Um, so uh, I think that, like, in part, I was just trying to understand, like, why Quran schooling was so important in West African society and so poorly understood outside. And that, in the end, led me to, like, reflect on epistemology, on the nature of knowledge itself is that the reason why like practices in Quran schools looked so strange to people on the outside was that the 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 people who were um, teaching Quran schools the parents who were sending their children there um, even you know young men and women who grew up in them were uh, were were carrying a, such a radically different conception of what knowledge was mm-hmm. that it didn't even look like knowing um, to Westerners and other people that were on the outside mm-hmm. um, and vice versa. Um, you know, like the, the people um, within Quran schools had really sharp critiques over the inadequacies of Western forms of education. And those sharp critiques had never actually been heard <laughs> in any of the academic literature because nobody was asking like what people formed in traditional um, institutions of Islamic knowledge actually had to say, like what their critique of Western <laughs> knowledge transmission might look like. So I knew that like I was onto something significant when I started to like think about knowledge and knowledge transmission from the standpoint of traditional Quran schooling and use that as a way to critique Mm -hmm. Western post-enlightenment forms of secular rationalism. Mm. Like I knew that, 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 um, like as time unfolded and I really got into the materials and interviewed, you know, I had like 80 or a hundred hours of interviews with people who grew up in Quran schools. In addition to like a lot of documentary stuff, like I was starting to form a picture of a, just a radically different conception of what it is to know. Um, and then I knew that if I could get inside that conception of what it is to know, I could say something powerful, not just about West African Muslims, uh, not just about West African Muslim society, but about Islam itself. And more importantly, about what was deficient um, in this um, in this fake uh, rationalism um, that has become a religion of its own in the West. Mm. So the walking Quran, which is a beautiful title, mm. um, taken from the wife of the Prophet Sallallahu description Salaam of him, when Aisha said uh, he was the walking Quran or he was the Quran walking, walking on describing here, yeah. his uh, character. Um, so I'd love to hear like. What does it mean to be a walking Quran? Yeah. <laughs> and how do I become one? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that, that that's really the that's really the challenge because mm-hmm. um, it's easy to teach people new content mm-hmm. with respect to knowledge, but it's very difficult to teach people a new way to know in the first place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to unlearn the way that you learn, um, and then 
you know, um, mm-hmm. be retrained, right. resocialized. Not what do you know, but how do you how know? do you know it? And mm-hmm. that that that's also that's something that the Muslims need to reflect on, mm-hmm. because we we very often like approach problems in in Islam from either a political level, like it's about a struggle over resources, or an ideological level, it's about a struggle over ideas. But we very rarely analyze things as epistem- at an epistemological level, um, that there's some kind of fundamental incommensurability between two understandings of what it means to know in the first place. Right. Um, so we change the content thinking that it's gonna change the outcome, but if you haven't challenged the, 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 the bedrock of yes. knowledge upon which it's based, then you just reproduce the same result, but with different content. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, having said that, mm. how do you do it? Um, you kind of actually have to unlearn everything that the West teaches you about what a human being is. You have to, you know, like <laughs> Cartesian and even Aristotelian rationalism posit the existence of a thing called a mind Mm -hmm. that is in a position of dominance and control over a body and that if you intervene at the level of a mind then you can command the limbs to do you know certain things Mm -hmm. so the target of its activity is always the mind always the mind always the mind Um, but like we were talking about um, at uh, Wednesday night's event the mind itself as a noun is a thing that doesn't occur in the Quran at all Aql never appears as a noun in the Quran. Intellection, aqala, understanding appears mm-hmm. in the Quran, but the target of um, that or the, the site of that intellection or reflection is always the heart. Mm-hmm. So you have to start with like a different understanding of what a human being is and actually get retrained on how you begin to root like um, your knowing, your perception, your understanding in your heart and having that express itself you know, on, on the limbs. Um, and that's something that just comes actually with like sitting with people of knowledge and being reshaped in your comportment just by being around people who assimilate the world differently um, than what you're used to. It's something that is acquired through mimesis, basically just like mm-hmm. imitation mm-hmm. and nearness. Um, it's something mm-hmm. that is acquired through like um, mm-hmm. listening to um intonations patterns of sentiment mm-hmm. patterns of feeling effective you know behavior like it starts to change the way that you process information and there's a very easy way to kind of like understand how that process works mm-hmm. which is like so so you know my my mother you know fled from my father when i was 7 years old to save her life because she was being abused she kidnapped me from his house mm-hmm. um and took us uh, me and my brother into hiding and then moved um, you know, many states away um, for, for safety. And yet anybody that kn- knew my father will tell you that my hand gestures, my mannerisms, my speech patterns, all are just like him. <laughs> um, and it was just because I spent every day at that man's locksmith shop until I was seven years old. So that through a pattern of unconscious mimesis, assimilation of the way that he carried himself, the things that he did with his hands, I became a reproduction of him at some level. Mm -hmm. And that anybody that was ever around him can see that. And that's how mimesis functions in a master-disciple relationship as well, is that just by being around a sheikh or a sheikha, you start to take on elements of how they carry themselves. Mm. And as you take on elements of how they carry themselves, those things that are expressing themselves externally on uh, your limbs start to work their way into your heart until they just become a part of your character Mm. without it requiring...
requiring any conscious reflection, without it requiring mm -hmm. a self-conscious performance, mm -hmm. it just becomes part of how you're hardwired. Mm -hmm. That is a subtle <laughs> um, process that um, analytical reason and discursive transmission of knowledge um, cannot capture. Suhba is what they used to call it, <laughs> you know, just yeah. keeping company with someone, yeah. that that's the most important, you know, kind of form of education. Yeah. So I guess I hate to say it, like there is no shortcut to it, except like sitting with the people of knowledge and like having your own character and comportment reconfigured just by proximity to them. Um, and mm. then, you know, learning to assimilate, um, knowing as it you know comes to you from the world in ways that are similar to the way that they do it um, and it'll never be exactly you know, no one's ever a replica of somebody else it's just that you internalize certain comportments in your own way um, and then you re-express those and then others grab onto that yes. and then they take a piece and then they bring their that piece to life within yeah. themselves mm. I don't know if that makes any no, sense. No, there's a lot in there, actually. <laughs> okay, go ahead. It's like, which angle to, to go? Because I feel like there's so much there. Um, the initial thing that this sparks for me is because there's a few, um, I think, misunderstandings from people that might come from a more Western analytical background and look at um, this traditional way of learning and mm. knowing and being. And one, because you, you often hear saying, oh, these Quran schools, it's just rote memorization. Yeah. Or you see... And even Muslims, you hear a lot, like people say, you know, modern Muslims, modern Muslims. saying like, oh, well, this, um, you know, following the Sunnah, it's like, we don't need to know how the Prophet got on and off of his horse or whatever. And it's like, you know what I mean? You know, yeah, and it's yeah, like, yeah. it hurts to actually, I can see it in your face because someone who understands what following the Sunnah is, it's like, and, and, and I've been reflecting on this that like, in other words, I think modern Western people, you know, like in academia, it's like the whole thing is you have to establish yourself by critiquing what came before. It's it, the idea of like following someone so closely yeah. that you become. And part of it is like this. I think this is a way to like reframe it that's useful, but that really like gets at the kind of like Sufi perspective of things is that. Following you follow the Prophet وسلم, because he is more you than you are. <laughs> he is yeah. more you than you are. In other words, he is the insan al kam. Yeah. He is the perfected um, human being. Yeah. And while you you we're all unique, and just as as we have something as seemingly insignificant as our fingertips are completely unique, even yeah. identical twins. What about our, our heart? What yeah. about our ruh, our spirit? However, as you we were talking about last night, it's like in the Quran, darkness is always plural and light is always one. Yeah, it's always singular. Yeah. And so, the Prophet is light. Yeah, for sure. And so, Nurun ala nur. he has, it, you could say, uh, realized the essence of like the essence of what is deepest inside us is that Muhammadan light. Yeah. And so the more we follow him, the more we become our true self actually. And true the Shaykh self. is himself is the one who has already 
traverse that path and can be our living example of yes. the prophetic. Yes. Yes. So, so there's there's several things to say. Um, I very much like what you said. The way that I would texture the first part of it was that it's not just that you become a realization of him, mm-hmm. but it's actually that you become the fuller measure of you. So mm-hmm. like Omar, for example, mm-hmm. may Allah be well pleased with him, doesn't stop being Omar. No. Um, he still is rough around the edges. Mm-hmm. He's still, you know, the, the, the right hand. He's still the sword. Mm-hmm. But he's a perfected version of himself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like all of those traits that he brought Um, And the way that I often talk about this is that like, you know, um, God smooths some surfaces and he leaves others jagged Mm -hmm. so that you'll fit where he's putting you. (laughs) Um, And also because some things need a serrated edge to cut them, you know, Mm -hmm. some situations need an Omar. Mm-hmm. Everybody can't mm-hmm. be an Abu Bakr. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody can't be smooth and mellow. So we're all different. Mm-hmm. Um, but we all find the most perfected version of ourselves in putting ourselves on the f- uh, the footsteps of the messengers, peace be upon them all, and mm-hmm. especially on the footstep of the most mm-hmm. perfected amongst them, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the reason is, as you say, we become the truest version of ourselves. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a formula of sending blessings that was given as a gift in a waking state to Ahmed Tijan Sharif, may Allah be well pleased with them, complete his works. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Jawaratul Kamal, the, the, which is often translated as the pearl of perfection, but the best way of translating is probably the, the flawless gem. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. And it's, a, and it's a, a formula for sending blessings on the Prophet وسلم, that comes at the end of the Tijani um, Wazifa. And um, when I would sit with the Tijanis, you know, uh, over extended periods of time, made ziyarah to Ahmed Tijani in, in, in Morocco, spent a lot of time with the community. I was I was blessed with what I felt like was an understanding of what the real significance of, of that flawless gem was, which is that there's only ever been one perfect mirror for the divine light. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. There's only ever been one unblemished heart. <laughs> um, that flawless gem, what is the function of a, of a gem is that it refracts mm-hmm. all of the light that hits mm-hmm. it. Facets. So, exactly, those facets. So when that um, divine light is cast onto the heart of the Messenger of God, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it expresses itself in an infinite number of variegated beams of different colors, mm-hmm. intensities, mm-hmm. frequencies, mm-hmm. and wavelengths. Mm-hmm. Um, and each one of those is us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are all an expression of that light that is individual and special and unique and yes. functions according to its own um, individuality. And yet we are all both from that same originating divine source and we are all refracted through that same flawless gem. Mm-hmm. I hope that good part of the tape wasn't ruined by the mm-hmm. my phone vibrating mm-hmm. in the background. <laughs> Mashallah. No, it's beautiful. And um, it's so amazing, I think, to to like be in a, and they're exceedingly rare, you could say, but in an environment of traditional Islamic learning in a sense because everyone is so is swimming in the Quran, you could say. Yes. So every conversation, every lesson, you just make a reference and it 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 unlocks a universe of symbolism. Yes. Right? You just have to mention uh you know Moses throwing down his staff yes. or you just have to mention uh Joseph in the well yeah. or you yeah. and then like it unlocks the symbolic universe 
And like, for instance, you know, Maulana Rumi, so beloved in our country, uh, someone did a study and they said a, a quarter of his lines of poetry are explicitly commenting on a chronic of verse. Of course. Yeah. And like, of course, the other three quarters are implicitly. But like you see, <laughs> you see that like it's yeah. all this, yeah. um, it exists with, it's like a, it's a whole universe. It's a whole, you know, civilization of meaning that you're able to access. And it's inexhaustible at the yeah. same time, yeah. you know. And to be in a place where everyone has that kind of touchstone or that same like reference point, they're swimming in the same ocean is so refreshing. And that and that's a huge part of like the the and, and it's something that's very poorly understood mm-hmm. is that the bedrock of that spirituality in West Africa is not Sufism as such. It is the fact that Sufi traditions have preserved that intense focus on the Quran. Um, the Quran as an existential reality, the Quran as the source of all meaning and all knowledge, the Quran um, as um, not just a book to be like um, recited, but one to be like meditated upon, one to be used in litanies, one to be used for spiritual unveiling, one to be used for active reflection, all of those things, this, this mm-hmm. well-rounded mm-hmm. approach to the Quran. And that's the reason why in those places, people are constantly coming back to the Quran, being nourished by the Quran. On, you know, spending, you know, 40 days just, you know, uh, reciting a certain number of times a single mm-hmm. ayah of the, the, the Quran until the realities of that ayah present themselves to the heart instead of simply coming as a, a matter of reflection. Um, so so that uh, and and. And this is this is something that's really of you know profound importance because the the Prophet ﷺ told us that in the end of days you know the people there's going to be lots of you know people reciting the Quran but it won't get past you know their mm-hmm. their throat mm-hmm. like it will not reach their hearts you know they'll just mm-hmm. they'll be saying words but it won't be penetrating down to the to the heart um, by focusing on Quran schooling in this you know particular way like you assure that people have the appropriate post- uh, posture of humility in front of the word that they um, that they you, you create the ideal circumstances for them to absorb the Quran at the level of the heart. And then everything after that um, is going to pass through that filter. Um, it's going to come through the Quran and through a sound and healthy approach to the Quran. So people will stay like attached to the Quran. Um, and we are so far um, you know, from from that, you know, like in this country, um, you know, people are just a, they're a long way from the Quran. The Quran is distant, you know, from them. Yes. And and also when we when we approach the Quran, um, we are also using like a very Western imperialist um, conception of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Like we are always trying to conquer the Quran. I'm going to memorize more of the Quran. I'm going to mm-hmm. understand the Quran. I'm going to go out and get the Quran. Listen, um, you can't take anything from God. Mm-hmm. He gives of his knowledge as he wills. The mm-hmm. approach in West Africa is to just prepare the receptacle and allow people to be conquered by the Quran mm-hmm. instead of producing like people who are trying to conquer the Quran. Mm. And that that really gets down to like that jewel is at the center of your being. You know, one of my teachers once said he said he said he said um, God is at the center of everyone's being. He said, but why can't we say I am God? He said, because you're not at the center of your being. <laughs> the whole path is about chipping away the layers to get there. You know, and, and that's that's a that's that's the one who knows himself knows his how Lord. you know versus what you know is yeah. like um and also the other thing is like to living exemplars, like yeah. 
like, and that you're talking about a society where the, you mentioned the superheroes, right? Or, or the people that people look up to. It's yeah. not, right? They're not putting Biggie or, wh- no. or whoever famous person on the mural on the wall. It's the, the great saints, yeah. the great awliya yeah. and the salihin. And so when you see someone who really is a walking Quran, it takes it from the, an intellectual thing to like, a, oh, that's what it is. And there's a heart relationship. Like you feel this person has a quality that like you said is unselfconscious and they're completely... Um, Harun Sujik who wrote um, who was one of our elders in our community and an author he said something beautiful he said I met a lot of um, saints in my time I was blessed you know and he said (laughs) he said one thing I noticed about them is they all have this quality that uh, they don't have any skin in the game that's real and that was such a profound way like in other words there's no individual eye that wants anything in no. these people well so the, there's there's multiple levels to address mm. that but i'll just address it from the level of spiritual realities first mm. is that when when you become a spiritually realized person your mission and the nature of your specific mission is fully accounted to you mm. um with um all of its conditions and all mm. of its limitations so it it obviates any need for ambition (laughs) you 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 have a specific task that you are tasked with in order to fulfill the word that is written upon you and Mm. everything else that you do other than that is a distraction and only that which you do to accomplish that um, secures that which god has already given to you Mm. so it makes the criteria for orienting your action very clear and that's why the awliya don't have a lot of wasted motion Mm -hmm. in their in their plan because they it has been um, revealed to them through inspiration the precise nature of their own mandate Um, and so therefore there's not going to be a lot of wasted motion in the plan they're not going to have any skin in the game um, because it's not a matter of personal fulfillment it's not a matter of performative piety it's a matter of you already have been shown the word that is written for you you simply have to fulfill it i don't know if that makes sense yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So that's uh, that's part of the, the the reality, you know, that that, that those people are dealing with. Um, so then, in a society that is organized and oriented towards pointing people towards the, um, those kinds of individuals, then they're very well positioned to guide others to a realization of their own individual missions. Because they don't have personal aspirations, they're not there to take anything from them. They're yes. simply they're simply there to help guide other people um, to the closest approximation of what they themselves have been given. Mm-hmm. Um, that applies to that uh, that applies to that person. And there's also something that's really really powerful in the fact that it has to be these human exemplars. This is not something that can be reproduced through an isolated engagement with texts. Mm. It has to be produced through a heart-to-heart, even knee-to-knee um, relationship with human beings. And that's, it's, it's, it's part of God's generosity that he uses 
people to guide other people. That's his established sunnah. That's why he sends prophets, mm-hmm. um, you know, peace be upon them all, is because in so doing, he multiplies the, the blessing for both the guide and the guided. Mm-hmm. The, the, the guide benefits and the guided benefit. And that's part of his generosity towards Bani Adama. That's part of his generosity towards the human race is that he allows us to be the vehicles through which we draw closer to him. Yeah, and it reminds me too of And this gets back to that question about what you know versus how you know. And you know through a knower. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You know through an arif billah. And and what the knowers, it's billah. That they know by Allah. How do they they know? know? They know through Allah. Through Allah, by Allah, Allah, with Allah. So that's also interesting, that term. Arif billah is also, it's not that they know... Allah, which is a like kind of you could say a what, yeah. but it's billah, yeah. which is a how. Yeah. It's it's how they know, which is profound. Yeah. Um, Subhanallah. And I was just thinking of the Ihya of Imam Ghazali, and it's forty books. And as you know, like he's trying to write a book that will cover the entire Deen, right? Yes. So there's the outward, the inward. It's four quarters. First quarter is like ibadah or acts yeah. of worship. Second uh, quarter is about you could like of worldly interactions. Yeah, then the third quarter is about the um, the virtues, uh, the vices, and the last quarter about the virtues. So it's like outward and inward. But it's forty books, and the twentieth book mm-hmm. is the book on the character of the messenger, the of God, middlemost so and innermost. Yeah, which is it, it's literally like the axis. So and it's you know what I mean. I and do. It's profound. Like his architecture in that is just like. We need the human exemplar, and we do. you can't hold any of this without it. Yeah, um, there's, there's. Before we get into the human exemplar and the character of the human exemplar, um, I do have a different understanding of Ihya Lumadin. I think than most people, mm. um, and I'll just share that since since it's it's cited here. Mm. For me, Ihya Lumadin is 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 it is written to to um, you know to make better Muslims, mm. but that's not its primary mm-hmm. um, reason for me. Um, the primary reason is uh, for the production of better scholars. Because what um, he knows, Ghazali knows through personal experience that you can gain more in terms of becoming a human being by by cleaning the latrines with your beard (laughs) than you can with studying the religious sciences. He calls it the revival of the religious sciences, not the revival of the deen. And the reason is, is that he wants to pair the genuine jihad and nafs with the struggle to understand the exoteric sciences. And the reason is that as long as your heart is burdened with diseases, as long as your intellect is occupied with... (laughs) with obeying the decrees that come from the nafs, mm. then you are intellectually stunted. It's impossible to, 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 um, to achieve your full intellectual productivity and insight when your nafs is enslaving your spirit and your heart. So he's trying to, to, to pair the, the struggle for the liberation of the spirit with 
the analytical sciences in order to bring back together something that had become separate. The analytical sciences and the spiritual path um, had grown apart as different disciplines. Um, and they had once been a single form of knowing that was embodied in the person of the messenger himself. Yes. All Ghazali is trying to do is to bring back actual knowledge yes. Yes. <laughs> um, amongst the people who call themselves scholars mm-hmm. um, by freeing them from the burdens of the chattering of the nuf so that they can become the scholars that they want to be. And I'll tell you how this was explained to me in Senegal. Is I had organized a conference about different forms of Islamic education. There was a black Mauritanian Fulani scholar who, who came and because he didn't speak Wolof um, like as fluently as the other people he'd spoke relatively little during the conference but on the second day um, you know he asked for the microphone and he said I've heard a lot about new forms of Islamic education um, and different approaches to teaching Quran and the sciences and he said but I still teach the old-fashioned way when a student comes I dip their uh, finger in the the ink and I trace with their finger on the board bah, and I say bat into the ear and they repeat it with the tongue and they see it with the eye and they uh, touch it with the hand mm-hmm. he was saying that all of the senses become engaged he's mm-hmm. still doing it this, this old way he said and then we proceed you know through the different sciences over the course of the life of that, that child as they become mature and he said and as I reflect on the different approaches I reflect on the outcomes he said as soon as I find someone who is produced in the new schools that writes as much and as well as Imam Ghazali Sheikh Ahmed Ubamba and Sheikh Ibrahim Yas I will switch the way that I teach. Mm. But until then, I'm going to stick mm-hmm. with the way of mm-hmm. training people mm-hmm. that produced Imam Ghazali, Ahmed Bamba, and Shaheed Ibrahim Yas. And I'm glad you said that because, uh, and in fact, that reading of Ghazali is, is absolutely correct. And he essentially says as much in the first book, Kitab al-Ilm. And he says like, Ilm. And he talks about fiqh. He says, fiqh, that we call fiqh this, and he like kind of like it actually shocked me when I first read it because he's like, what he like this like rules of of menstruation and things like that that, that people talk about. He said that's not what the Prophet ﷺ meant. The fuqaha are those that have a deep knowledge of understanding. God. That's it. Yeah. And so, and then he also says he says like fiqh itself. He's he's like there's there's sciences, the worldly sciences, and and sciences of the akhirah. Yeah. And he puts fiqh in the worldly sciences. For sure it is. Which is profound For because sure he says is. like you could, and he said the proof is you can study that and not be on the path to the afterlife. Like it's Ooh. just, you know what I mean? It's And so. Real talk. <laughs> and you're right. And, and, and you know, um, it's really interesting too because his brother, Ahmed Ghazali, yeah. was really the one who stayed on him when he went down that scholarly path and was like, you're really down a treacherous path yeah, be careful. sitting with all these kings and yeah, you know with no, all these a... you know and what's interesting is Ahmed Ghazali wrote mostly in Persian mm-hmm. and so he's more famous in the Persian world yep. and the Persians they you know the Persian Sunni tradition they always said like Ahmed Ghazali far surpassed his brother Abu Hamid yeah. because he never dabbled in all of that yeah. he just went straight to Allah yeah. and um, but in any case yeah these are important things so we should uh, wrap up pretty soon i see Maghreb's gonna come in shortly. Okay, but uh I, we didn't get to talk about your your other we'll, we'll work save so it, maybe we'll you... save it for another podcast if you want to but i can say something yeah about just it say a want. few words about it inshallah um jihad of the pen is uh, um a work that i completed with 
um, three other scholars. Um, two of them were my first two graduate students that I trained, Zachariah Wright and Amir Syed. Um, and the third is Sheikh Mohammed Sharif, um, who uh, contributed um, the translations of Uthman Danfodio's um, works um, and who also co-wrote with me the introduction to the sections on Uthman Danfodio. So what Jihad of the Pen is, is it's um, in a single volume, it's um, three pieces of writing from uh, w what one could argue are the four most influential Sufi authors of the last 200 years. Um, Uthman Danfodio, Elajumartal, um, Ahmadou Bamba Mbake and Sheikh Ibrahim Yas. Um, two Tijani scholars, Al-Qadri and the founder of the Muridiya, who were profoundly influential in the spread of Sufi thought. And we took a sample from each different stage in their lives, some of their early writings, uh, middle writings, and later writings, mm. poetry, prose, different pieces. Mm. Um, and Zachary Wright writes the introduction to that volume, and I wrote the conclusion. And the conclusion um, I entitled The Prophet, the Quran, and Islamic Ethics. And it's my attempt to come to terms with the ultimate meaning of Sufism in West Africa um, and to try to connect what is implicit in all of the pieces that are translated in the volume, which is the relationship between Sufism as the science of akhlaq, um, character training, and as Sufism as the science of haqqaiq. And it's about the relationship, therefore, between ethics and spirituality in Islam. Mm. MashaAllah. And that's out. It's out. Yeah, yeah people, people, yeah, we'll definitely check it out. MashaAllah. Um, you also mentioned you're working on a, a book about yeah. um, uh, slave rebellions. Yeah, it? it's anti-slavery movements in West Africa. It's called the First Atlantic Revolution, Islam, Abolition, and Republic before 1776. And it, and it grows out of chapter three of the Walking Quran, which is called the Book in Chains, which is about how a number of different Muslim anti-slavery movements in West Africa um, were sparked by the visceral reaction to the enslavement of walking Qurans, of beloved scholars. Um, and I liken it in that work to the reaction that people in the Muslim world had when Terry Jones wanted to burn copies of the Quran, um, that like mm -hmm. if this sparked a visceral response amongst the Muslims in the 21st century, what about the public abuse and enslavement of beloved exemplars of the Book of God in West Africa? Mm -hmm. And what I found was that... Um, that when these people were enslaved, it led to a number of anti-slavery movements, social rebellions, and social movements. And one of them leads to the creation of the first state in the modern world to abolish the institution of slavery, which is the Islamic Republic of Futa Toro in 1770. And so the book that I'm writing now not only details that anti-slavery movement and how it was um, understood and actually very widely known in Europe at its time. Mm -hmm. The founder of the London Society for the Abolition of the Slave Trade actually takes his inspiration in large part from an African Muslim anti-slavery movement that he um, uh, researches. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's about how that movement um, actually uh, informs the growth of Western abolitionism, but mm -hmm. also how enslaved African Muslims who struggled against slavery in um, the Senegal River Valley and in other parts of West Africa, ultimately carried elements of that revolution into slave rebellions that became the Haitian Revolution, into slave rebellions in Antigua, into South Carolina, into Georgia, into Louisiana. It's an effort to track um, the way in which um, a certain kind of uh, Islamic anti-slavery actually becomes an important part of Western societies. And just one kind of like small you know, a uh, piece of that is that there's a there's a significant chance that um, 
that the great great grandfather of Frederick Douglass is descended from one of these uh, Senegambian um, revolutionaries, Muslim revolutionaries that you know is um, arrives in the uh, Georgia Sea Islands probably in the 17, um, 1780s. Um, mm-hmm. So that and there are other places where you can track like a direct relationship between um, mm-hmm. West African freedom struggles and um, Black American freedom struggles in this country. So again, we're now back where we started, right? Where I was sitting on that bus trying to reflect on how to connect my own experience as an African-American mm-hmm. to this hidden history that had been hidden from me about Africa. And for sure, that hidden history of Muslim anti-slavery struggles um, is something that has been intentionally kept from us um, as, uh, as people... Um, as black people, as Muslims, as human beings, mm-hmm. in order to preserve the fiction that um, European Enlightenment rationalism is the source of freedom mm-hmm. in human history. Right. Mashallah. Yeah, that's profound. And, you know, I think that that other point you mentioned related is it like you mentioned these walking Qurans mm. and you can't write that history unless you understand like internally how people venerate the awliya and the salihin and i remember uh sylvian diouf in the, in the servants of allah book she she talks about a specific um rebellion i think in brazil where they had imprisoned the sheikh they had imprisoned their sheikh and like he you know they understood him to be, you know, a great saint. And so the whole thing is like, all right, we're going to break him out of prison. And like, whatever happens. And so um, I'm glad you're highlighting all these. These things are really important for all of us. And um, I've really felt in my time in West Africa and having had the blessing of traveling many places in the Muslim world that the place that Muslims in America most need to connect with, no matter what their background happens to be, to understand the, uh, a healthy viability of an Islam that can root itself in these lands, is West Africa. For sure. And for many reasons, obviously the, 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 the rooting of Islam mm-hmm. in these lands be through West Africans, but also there's something in the culture that, yeah, there's a connection, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, the, the one thing, you know, that I would say um, about that is that the, the thing that you that that maybe we can draw the most benefit from um, in the West African Islamic tradition, um, and it's related to that uh, anti-slavery piece that you just mentioned, but also to kind of the broader respect for, for the Aliyah, is that what you see there um, is... Um, is a cultivation of veneration and love for both truth mm. and all of its embodied bearers. Mm. <laughs> and, and we can add to that, of course, it's a different podcast, but the, <laughs> the way that men and women interact oh, is yeah. so beautiful and honorable and, and like noble and also fits with the west like the way that certain way healthier other muslim (laughs) cultures there's no way to transpose that here without doing severe damage yeah it's just you know what i mean so yeah that's another we should we should should probably do a whole separate (laughs) podcast on you know like the the healthy gender relations in islam and west africa Mm -hmm. that would be a beneficial thing inshallah
Allah bless you. Just May Allah bless us both together, inshallah. Yeah.